0: Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, if you, if you, if you uh, don't have a Bible, uh, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, don't have one that you can call yours, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, the reason for that is really simple. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, but the, the top tier, the best of all the awesome reasons that God gave us the Scriptures is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. Which means if you want to know God, you don't go through some mediator, clergy figure. You go to the Word. And so, um, press your nose in there and he'll make himself known. I, I'm confident of that. Um, It'll be a while before we get to Matthew chapter one. We got a lot to cover in the buildup this morning. Um, so so we, we survived the holiday schedule, right? Like, like we made it through Advent. We, we did the New Year's thing. We even had our very first snow day of the year. We just got it out of the way, right out of the gate, right? Um, so like most of us have already taken down uh, and boxed up all the Christmas decorations. That is, unless your last name is Rockefeller. Um, we'll, we'll check in on them come Easter. All right, uh, but most of us, most of us uh, are like the new year kind of brings with it this, this deep-seated expectation of starting new things. And, and, and we like to pander around here. That's, that's everything that I am, right? I'm a panderer. Uh, and so uh, that, that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're going to start a new thing. And my microphone, if I'm messing with this, I'm sorry. All right, so it's time to get back to what I believe, I'm thoroughly convinced is our happy place as a church family, uh, which is walking slowly through a book of the Bible. I'm confident that that's our happy place. I don't know if you've noticed this for yourself, but uh, God seems to draw us into a better, healthier, more joy-filled place as a church whenever we commit ourselves to a specific text of Scripture over an extended period of time. All right? and, and I've only got about seven-ish years of data to, to you know, and and... and and story to back that up but it's what I've seen to to be true he just kind of blesses it over and above what he does in other seasons and that doesn't mean at all that doesn't mean that that the the one-off sermon or the the seasonal series or the topical series that those are wrong or out of bounds not even close we we use those uh, willingly and all the time around here we do it on a regular basis and they have a valuable place in our preaching calendar it's just that man, the book series always hit different they do. God seems to, to round us out as a church body, round us out as his people whenever we walk straight through a text instead of, you know, just jumping around to things that I or we or some team that we have here has put together because we think we need to study such and such, right? Um, put in a lot of work sometimes uh, to creatively kind of craft uh, a series and string together all the logical ideas so it comes out to one coherent whole. And uh, and unfortunately, sometimes we also sometimes get a a, a big head about how creative and and awesome we were. Um, But then, then we move on from there and just preach straight through a book of the Bible and God shows us how big He is and how smart He is and how sovereign he is over our calendar, and it makes us look kind of small. Have you seen that for yourself? I've seen it. Despite my high aspirations, the Holy Spirit always proves himself to be an infinitely better planner than I am or any team that we've got here putting in the work. Um, And Because of that, because of that, there has not been a single moment in my seven years here where I've ever thought to myself, man, I, I wish we had studied this instead of that. We, if we had studied that instead of this, we would have been in a really good place right now. No, it's never happened. But there have been countless moments where we've been, in, you know, where it's kind of become obvious to us somewhere in the middle of a long series that God has led us to a healthy place without us even knowing we were getting there. My propensity to try and pull all the levers and make the parts move never produces that. Not even close. And so, all that's to say this. I want to kick off a brand new series this morning, taking a slow walk through the gospel of Matthew. And and when I say a slow walk, I really do mean a slow walk. Um, It's going to take us a while. Uh, Matthew is not a short book. Um, If we committed to go straight through it without any breaks at all, it would still take us about a year and a half. But don't worry, I'm not going to do that to you. All right, We'll be in and out of it with what I think, at least, is some healthy rhythm. And so we're looking at about three-ish years right now, but we'll see what God gives to us. I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know if we're going to need to take some extended breaks because, you know, we're worn out. I don't know. But I want to slowly and steadily take it line by line, pick it apart. Uh, Just suck the marrow, if you will, if you want to use that more poetic language. I want to dig out of it as many good things as God sees fit to give to us. So, does that sound like a good plan to you? Have I, have I put it on the, high, on the top shelf for us? All right, so wh- what do we need to know before we even get started about the book that bears Matthew's name? Well, let's get the obvious part of, out of the way first. It's a gospel account of Jesus, boom, right? <laughs> um, which means that it's the story of Jesus' life, his, his origin, his work, and his end. Or, or we more commonly say his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, right? right? And the reason why it bears the name of Matthew is because, get this, It's written by a dude named Matthew. We're brilliant, we Christians, right? Uh, No, Matthew, also called Levi, is one of the 12 disciples. Uh, He tells his own conversion story in chapter 9, though Mark and Luke both give us some extra information uh, when they tell it as well. Uh, He was a tax collector, a publican they were called, all right, which means that he wasn't exactly someone that people were fond of, all right? He 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 had some friends, but they were they were friends just like him, and everybody who wasn't just like him, they were kind of his enemy. All right? And so, uh, and so um, tax collectors were men who purchased their way into the profession of being the functional hands and feet of the Roman tax system. All right? Whatever, where, wherever the empire stretched itself, Rome needed to collect taxes, right? And, and you can't have a Roman army and Roman roads without Roman taxes, all right. And so in each region of the empire, the way they figured out how to do that is that they would sell off the opportunity, they would call it, for someone from that region to work for them. All right. You be the one that goes collects the taxes for us. You keep your peace. Send the rest on to Rome. All right. And in the case of northern Judea, in, uh, in the case of uh, uh, the, the area of the world around the Sea of Galilee, that meant that you hired Jewish men for the job. So what kind of people do you think wanted that job? Take whatever, take whatever your most libertarian friends think about the IRS, all right, and apply that logic to an occupying empire. An empire, by the way, who wouldn't mind just snuffing you off if you looked at an official the wrong way? All right? You, you can start to... To understand some animosity here. But you can add on that animosity because uh, instead of just some random faceless person working for the government. No, this was your neighbor or your cousin who ponied up to be that guy that worked for that empire. And you can start to understand um, just how hated and despised the publicans were. We're always present towards guys like Matthew, sometimes under the surface and sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, very much not under the surface. And that's why in chapter 9, when Matthew is telling his own story, the Pharisees approach Jesus while he's at Matthew's house and, and they go, Hey, what are you doing here? Don't you know what kind of house you're in right now? Did you know what kind of people you're spending time with? And Jesus makes it explicitly clear, right? He says, these are exactly the kind of people that I came to save. And so Matthew ends up following Jesus around for about three years while Jesus taught and worked signs and wonders. And he, and he was around for the miracles and he was around for Jesus putting the religious authorities in their place. And he was around for the sermons and he was around for the parables. And then ultimately he was around for Jesus' death and resurrection. And then, then after Jesus' ascension into heaven, he became one of the leaders of the early church, right? Known as the apostles. Not a very prominent one. Other guys rose to the surface. Matthew kind of falls away. In fact, Matthew is mentioned for the very last time in the Bible in Acts chapter 1 when they're listing the apostles right after they replaced Judas with Matthias. After that, we have zero biblical record of Matthew. There's some debate, a lot of debate even, over in the historical record about where Matthew might have traveled and preached. There's plenty of solid reason that he eventually took the gospel to the area of the world that's now Iran today. All right? We have pretty solid reason to suspect that that's true. We also have a ton of debate about how Matthew might have died. Several different uh, martyrdom accounts are floating out in the ether, but mostly mostly history is silent about Matthew. He's a pretty obscure figure. And because of that, and you'll be shocked to learn this, but there's some debate over whether or not the book actually belongs to him. Right? Um, not from anyone dating before the 20th century, there's pretty unanimous opinion in the first 20 or so you know centuries of the church. Uh, but such is the state of modern textual criticism these days. There's, there's not a single book of the Bible, I don't know if you know this, but there's not a single book of the Bible that doesn't have at least one group out there somewhere trying to pick it apart and currently trying to debunk either all or part of it. Matthew's got his detractors, it's true. So what are the supposed arguments that people often try to hold up Against uh, what in the academy would be called Matthean uh, authorship. Well, it comes in kind of two primary forms. Uh, for starters, and for those who have been around for a long time, be patient with me, but... Um, I need to talk to the newbies for a second. All right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, maybe you're brand new to the Bible. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are incredibly similar in a lot of ways. They're known as the synoptic gospels, right? Uh, because they sh- they see things from the same viewpoint. That's what synoptic means. It means complementary optics, complementary views, All right. Uh, and so John's way out in left field doing his own thing. Just let him play, all right? Uh, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke have massive chunks uh, of their writing that are all, and hear me, obviously verbatim, complicated, of each other, right? It's pretty clear they're all quoting each other, right? And so they mess around with the timelines a little bit. There's chronology there, but chronology isn't the most important thing to any of those three guys, all right? Um, narrative flow for their intended audience is the more important priority for them. But mostly, mostly, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us the exact same story with pretty much the exact same words, all right? That's that's what the synoptic gospels are about, all right? And so why would that be an issue for the authorship of Matthew specifically? Well, there's a long list of really solid reasons to believe that the gospel of Mark probably came first. Right? It's not ironclad. and There's a lot of really smart, Jesus-loving people that disagree with that. Uh, but uh, it's widely accepted and an incredibly reasonable assumption that Mark is the first gospel to emerge. And we think, our best guess, right, we think that Mark probably began circulating in the mid-50s A.D. And it's, our best, it's our best guess. Okay. Well, our best guess for Matthew to show up is in a 10-year window between 55 and 65 AD. So, after Mark. And so one of the arguments, one of the two primary arguments that the anti mathean groups like to make is that there's no possible way that an apostle, meaning Matthew, would ever directly quote the work of a non-apostle, meaning Mark, at such length. Surely. I mean, surely he would have his own original work, right? Does, you see the problem in the logic of that assumption why why do we necessarily need to believe that Matthew is not allowed to quote Mark like that's somehow off limits why and the answer is it's not it's what's known as a non-sequitur a logical fallacy right as an apostle Matthew is allowed to quote whoever Matthew really wants to quote kind of like an authority thing he gets to flex when he wants to in fact, quoting Mark like he does seems to maybe be counter to that. It actually adds apostolic affirmation to what Mark wrote. An apostle publicly attesting to the same things that little old Mark attested to. It's also widely assumed that Mark probably wrote under the authority of Peter. It's not, it's not expressly uh, stated in Mark's account, but he ran around with Peter for a while. And it's, it's assumed that Mark got the first-hand story from Peter. And so even as a non sequitur, even, as, even if you falsely, and I think it is false, I think if you falsely assume that Matthew's not allowed somehow to, to quote non-apostolic writings, it's still kind of a ridiculous argument because Mark probably had an apostle leaning over his shoulder telling him the story when he wrote it. And so it's, 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 it's a non-starter. Okay, okay, so major reason number one down. What, what about the other reason? Well, the second reason that some people try to reject Matthew's authorship is the reason why the window for, for when we think Matthew showed up ends at 65 A.D. is because we think Matthew's probably died by that point. That's the window that he's probably gone. Some of the accounts of his martyrdom, or most of the accounts of his martyrdom, martyrdom happen around that time. Some of them happen as early as 60 A.D. So why would that be an issue? Well, it's because towards the end of Matthew's gospel account, all right, we have what's known as the Olivet Discourse. All right? uh, and we'll talk more about the discourses here, here in a moment. We'll spend some time spelling all those out. But starting in chapter 23, all right, Jesus gives an extended teaching about future things, including, including the destruction of the temple. Remember, not one of these stones will be on top of each other. You, you've probably read that before, right? That destruction plays out at the hands of Rome in 70 A.D., five to ten years after we think Matthew has died. And so the argument literally goes like this. Jesus was probably just a regular person and wasn't actually able to predict the future. So his followers went in after the fact and wrote those things after they happened. And so because there's a mention of the temple's destruction, and we know the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and because Matthew's probably dead by that point, it can't possibly be from Matthew. End of argument. (laughs) That's the argument, right? In other words, they carry a presupposition into the text that Jesus cannot be who his followers somehow deceptively claim he is. And so that requires a timeline that fixes all the things that look like Jesus might actually be who his followers say he is. And so in direct opposition to what is held up lately as modern scholarship, I'll go ahead and confidently plant my flag. I'm, I'm pretty convinced that the disciple known as Matthew is the one who wrote the book of Matthew. Like the two main it-can't-possibly-be-him arguments sound ridiculous to me. Okay. Okay, but who did he write his gospel to? And how did he do it? Well, based on what we see, it seems pretty clear that Matthew wrote to those with a Jewish background. And it seems it's written as an evangelistic tool for those who were looking for the Messiah, uh, but were maybe on the fence about whether or not Jesus was that guy. Matthew goes out of his way far more than any other gospel writer to tie Jesus' life to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He goes out of his way to to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of promises made to Abraham and promises made to David. That he's the one that the prophets all uh, of old pointed to and rejoiced in. Longed for that coming day. Matthew sets his sights firmly on showcasing that Jesus was not simply everything that the Jews were longing for in the Messiah, but that Jesus far outpaces every single one of those expectations. That he actually made those expectations seem too small and short-sighted. So how does Matthew then build his supposedly messianic argument? Well, he's going to paint Jesus as the rightful king establishing his good kingdom. That's the theme of Matthew. The king has arrived, and he's building what he intends to build. The book of Matthew has seven sections. Um, I don't know if uh, you got the image in there. Hey, look at there. There's an image in there. Uh, I've got an image that you can see, and I know it's small, but there's. I told you Matthew's long. Right? All right. So Matthew's got seven sections. It starts with an introduction into who Jesus is. Uh, and so... Um, and then it ends with Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. You've, you've, if you've read the Gospels at all, you kind of get the, the, the way the story rolls. The five sections in the middle, the big red parts, all right, uh, Matthew splits up his Gospel account into what's called five discourses. extended periods of teaching uh, from Jesus on a particular theme. And then Matthew follows each of those teaching moments by telling us how Jesus affirmed everything that he taught through signs and wonders. He moves around all over the place and he makes some authoritative statements and he does some things that makes everybody go, wow, maybe this guy is really who he says he is. I mentioned one of those discourses just a moment ago, the Olivet Discourse. That's discourse number five, all right? A lot of people are most familiar with the first discourse. Uh, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. All right? And so in the middle of Matthew is compiled into these five major sections. Uh, and it's followed by stories of what Jesus did. And it's capped on both ends by the birth narrative and the passion resurrection narrative. Got, got it? You feel like you're an expert in Matthew now? You're all experts in Matthew. Let's go. All right. Freshly minted. Here we. So you ready to look at Matthew? You're not ready. All right, so Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And you'll be excited to learn we're in everybody's favorite genre of scripture a genealogy. Don't worry, I'm gonna make this fun. All right. Matthew 1, chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right, we gotta call time out already. All right, so Matthew opens up his gospel with a genealogy. Yay! This is one of the long lists of things that we point to, um, actually to argue that the gospel was clearly for a Jewish audience. Um, Genealogies were not important in uh, the ancient world. They're all over the place. They had them. They used them. They're in many extant writings that you can pick up and research on your own today. You can find genealogies buried in a lot of ancient stuff. But, man, they were super important to the Jewish people in a way that makes everybody else look like they don't care. Uh, John wrote his gospel account to the Greeks. Uh, The Greeks valued genealogies. They have them in a lot of ancient writings. John didn't bother to put a genealogy in his gospel account. They didn't didn't need it. Um, He doesn't need it to get his point across. Mark is probably, we think, written to a primarily Roman audience. Uh, There are genealogies all throughout Roman history. That was important to them for a lot of reasons. Uh, But mostly the Romans don't care. Mark doesn't have a genealogy. Luke seems to be written to a mixed audience, Jews and Gentiles together. He's got a genealogy, but it comes in chapter 3. What does Matthew do? He attacks it right out of the gate. It is the first thing he wants to talk about. Allow me to make it explicitly clear to you exactly who it is that we're talking about. Let, let me put all of the cards on the table here so that you know and I know we're talking about Jesus. Right? And then Matthew Matthew tosses three titles into his very first sentence that we need to pay very close attention to. They may not seem like big deals, but uh, to Matthew's Jewish audience, they are atom bombs. For starters, he calls Jesus Christ. Now, it is 2024, and we live in the world that we live in. And so the reality is that for most of us in this room, we become so familiar in our culture with hearing Jesus and Christ together that we normally associate them mentally as a first name and a last name. But that ain't what's going on here. That's not at all what's going on here. Uh, Christ is a title. It's a title, something bestowed upon him. And so what does Christ mean? It means the anointed one. The anointed one. If you wanted to say that in Hebrew... You call that person a Mashiach. I'm bad at Hebrew. Probably Mashiach. In English, you'd say the Messiah. If you're a faithful Jew in the first century, you're hearing these stories of some poor dude from Nazareth that's doing all these miracles, and he's causing a stir, and, and eventually he's caused enough stir that the authorities put him to death, but then a few days later, suddenly he's, still, he's alive again. What do you do with that news as you're hearing it through the grapevine? You've got some questions, right? You're maybe beginning to sit up on the edge of your seat, longingly hoping that maybe there's some truth to this. Because if there's some truth to this, this changes some things. Matthew calls Jesus the Christ, and it's, it's loaded with centuries of hope-filled expectation for the faithful remnant. But That's not all that he calls them. He also calls him son of David, right? Son of David. Again, put yourself in the mind of the faithful Jew expectantly longing for the coming Messiah, right? You know the promises that were made all those years ago. You know the promises that God made to David that one of his heirs would sit on his throne forever. You've got that buried in the back of your memory. That there's this promised coming king who will actually be better, a better king than David ever could be. Ever was. So this isn't isn't just some random guy running around Judea making claims to the throne, trying to overthrow some people for political reasons. No, Matthew's going to trace for you Jesus' true Davidic lineage. He's ready and willing to show you that this potential Messiah has all of the required pedigree. So you're starting to hope a little more, right? That what if is starting to turn into, well, maybe starting to let your guard down some but then matthew says that jesus is the son of abraham so what what does that mean because listen if if matthew can trace jesus's line back to david to the king david does he really need to trace it all the way back to abraham is that really that important if he's if he's if he's in the royal line of israel why does he need to go back all the way to abraham so there's some debate over why exactly Matthew decides to bring it up here. And depending on some doctrinal leanings you may or may not have, whether you know it or not, uh, there's some debate, that, there's different sides of that debate that sound winsome. Uh, for some, for some Matthew is showing this that, that just as Jesus steps onto the scene as the greater David, he also steps onto the scene as the greater Abraham, meaning that he's establishing a new Israel. And so for those of you who lean more towards a, a more covenantal theology, Matthew is seen as saying that Jesus is building a redeemed nation of people for himself, and he stands now as the new patriarch of that people. Now, if you're not in that covenantal tribe, and there's a lot of us in here who aren't, you instead tend to see that as an appeal here to Abraham's true children. And We've talked about that before in our church family, right? That, that the true children of Abraham are those who believe God's promises just like Abraham did. And so again, put yourself in the mind of the faithful Jew. You know that the physical descendants of Abraham did not keep the covenant that God made with them. You know they failed in that. You know that, that, that the threat finally came to repent or else be undone by the Babylonians. And you know that the remnant was carried along in spite of Israel and Judah's sin. And you know that even after the exile and even after the, the temple is rebuilt, the Spirit of the Lord does not rest there. You know how painful and lonely and empty it all feels. And so to hear that this Jesus is the son of Abraham probably sounds to your ears like a promise is finally, at long last, being fulfilled. That empty temple will not be empty. See, if you're looking for the long-awaited Messiah, and there were a lot of people in Judea in those days that weren't looking. But if you're looking for the long-awaited Messiah, if you were one of the few hoping and praying and waiting expectantly for the arrival of all that God had promised, Matthew opens up his account of the gospel by boldly declaring, hey, this Jesus is everything you're looking for. He's everything. What you long for, all that you've placed your hope in, he's here. Oh, he's here. Look at, look at verse 1 again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation, the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. All right, so there, there are a couple of things to, to, to point out here. The first one is for all of you who have all of you who have read this text before. You, you in verse seventeen. Right, Matthew's eventually going to say that that he's divided his genealogy into three sections, three segments of fourteen names. Right, um, and and we just read the first fourteen of those names, and so we we're a third of the way through the genealogy. Right, and on the surface, um, if you are able to do math in your head very quickly, uh, it's going to feel like a giant problem. Right, uh, if you're do- so the timeline, it doesn't add up, and I mean at all. Matthew just gave us a history between Abraham and King David. How many years is that? We think it's at least a 1,000. There's, there's a good chunk of time between Abraham and David. It could be as many as fourteen or 1,500. Um, but it's at least a 1,000. And if you flip back in the Old Testament and um, start picking apart the genealogies that you find there, there's a bunch of names that Matthew doesn't use. It takes more than 14 generations to equal 1,000 years, and there's a bunch of missing names. So what do we do with that? And if, you, if you're inclined to think that the Bible isn't trustworthy, that you, you probably fly straight into thinking that Matthew's wrong or ignorant or maybe even a liar. What do we do? And I'll, and I'll be the first to say this structure feels like an obvious affront to our modern sensibilities of record-keeping. Right? We want the list. and If you don't give us the list, you're hiding something, right? There's a reason that I call it modern. It's because Matthew's original audience wouldn't have seen it as a problem. Well, isn't that an argument against inerrancy then? No, no, it's not, because Matthew's not trying to give a complete exhaustive list. His audience wasn't looking for a genealogy that included every single name that could be included. They didn't care. Nor would most cultures across most of human history. We're weird and unique, our culture. So what then would a first century Jewish person have actually been looking for when they were reading through a genealogy? And the answer is footholds, anchor points, names that would have been immediately recognizable and they could attach major stories to was also a bit of a historical slight against you if you were the name removed from the list we see this theme play out a little bit in uh, other books uh, of the bible first and second chronicles specifically there uh and it was a retelling of judah's history after they came back from the exile there's there's some embarrassing people left out and they're left out on purpose so why would matthew have picked the names that he picked and why would he have structured the whole thing in this interesting three 14 part sections well, first of all, it would have been expected in their culture for people to try to commit the, the genealogy to memory. And so three, 14-part sections kind of makes that a whole lot easier, right? It would, be, it would be easier for me to do that than it would be if the list was just a big, long list with all the names. But notice the specific people that Matthew chooses to mention. Like, think of their stories real quick. What names do you recognize in there? Stories of God's faithfulness, through some incredibly unlikely people. You've got Isaac, right? The child of promise, the kid that was never gonna come who finally came and then was almost put to death and got spared, right? Um, you've got Jacob, the son, the younger son of, uh, who has inherited the promise instead of his older brother, but he, he kind of did it through incredibly deceptive means. Remember that story? Maybe it's been a while since you've been in Sunday school you got three women listed here. And not only would it have been completely revolutionary to mention women in a genealogy at all, but all three of these women have got some really awkward stuff in their stories. If you're a kid and you don't know the story of Tamar, you ask your parents when you're older. If you're a grown-up who doesn't know the story of Tamar, it reads like a Jerry Springer backstory. Right? Tamar had to prostitute herself so that she could provide for herself because Judah, her father-in-law, the one through whom the scepter would never depart, he wasn't man enough to take care of her. And the story is incredibly dark. Shortly after that, we see Rahab's name mentioned, an actual prostitute. And then we see Ruth, and Ruth is such a lovely lady of character, right? Except for the fact that her people, the Moabites, exist for the sheer purpose of the story of Lot and his daughters. Moabites had a generational curse upon them by God. They weren't a good people. Ruth is an exception, a a stark contrast to everything her people were known to be. There's grave sin all throughout Jesus' family line, grave sin. But there's also redemption, incredible redemption. The last of the names in this very first section is the great king, David. You remember the story of David's anointing. Samuel shows up. God looks on the outside while you look on or God looks on the inside and when man just looks on the outside, he sees the heart. David is raised up and made king over God's people. It's the golden age, right? Everything they want to get back to. But Matthew's genealogy keeps going. Look at look at verse 7 or the second half of verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Uh Uh-oh. And so just as quickly as there's redemption, we see incredible sin again, right? In a genealogy showing Jesus is in the line of David, the king that the the faithful remnant hold up as the standard, right? The one they want to get back to. Matthew reminds them that we ultimately need a better king than David ever was. Because David wasn't enough. Look at verse 7. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Who wants to sign up to read next week? It's not that hard. Just, just say what comes out. All right. So section one covered the, the time between Abraham and David. Section two covers the time between David and the exile. And again, there's, there's a bunch of missing names here. Uh, in fact, more than the last section. There's a bunch of missing names here. Matthew's still not hiding anything. He's highlighting who he wants to highlight in order to set the tone. But what's interesting to me is that even as he has the power to choose who he places in his genealogy, Matthew doesn't cut out some names that you and I would probably be, want to cut out. <laughs> he goes a different route. If, if you're looking for embarrassing kings to not mention, Ahaz is your guy. you know the story of Ahaz, one of the worst kings in Judah's history. He's in, he intentionally undid all of the spiritual reforms of his dad. His dad was one of the best kings in Judah's history. Ahaz gets to the throne. He's like, nah, undo it all. He's a, he's a jerk. He permitted child sacrifice in Judah. Incredibly wonderful guy. And then he sacrificed his own kids. He desecrated the temple. He made an alliance with Assyria that God expressly forbid him to make. Ahaz was a wreck. If you're trying to paint a picture of a nice, clean family tree, Matthew is not doing a very good job. One commentator I looked at this week put it this way. Jesus did not belong to the nice, clean world of middle-class respectability, but rather he belonged to a family of murderers, cheats, cowards, adulterers, and liars. Yes, Matthew is being selective in who he highlights. He is far from a hype man. That's not what go, what's going on here at all. He gives a brutally honest accounting of a long list of dumpster fires in Jesus' family tree. The sinless Savior comes from, and hear me, comes for an incredibly sinful people. And that's good news for a sinner like me. Because I've got a lot of dumpster fires. I've even created a few. Church, we need to be very, very careful in how we articulate the gospel, because we need to remember Matthew's own calling. Jesus did not come for the respectable. He came for the sick. Look at verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abihu the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Amathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The regality of Jesus' family tree, it's left in ruins. A couple of generations and it's over. A line of kings who ruled over Israel and then over Judah, they're carted off to a foreign country. Kingdom, And when they do finally return to the land, it's not their land anymore. They're vassals of one empire after the next and after the next. Kings reduced to farmers and carpenters in a land that they can never again politically call their own. Matthew begins his genealogy. By, by pointing to Jesus and then pointing to David and then pointing to Abraham. And then in a much slower walk, he, he retraces his steps, right? And so Abraham, through generation after generation after generation, promise after promise after promise, back to David. And man, look at it. God continually fulfilled all he said he was going to fulfill. He rescues them out of childlessness and he rescues them out of famine and he rescues them out of Egypt and he rescues them out of being kingless. And then? David ascends the throne. We get that king. and then another king, and then another king, and then another king. And yes, the kingdom is split in two, but God is still faithful. And yes, many of those kings are wicked. In fact, some of them are some of the worst kings that have ever sat upon a throne. But there was a, there were continual glimmers of revival and hope and restoration. God was faithful to his people in spite of their faithlessness back towards him. But then comes the exile. So did God, did God fail in his promises after all? Did he finally walk away from his sinful people? And so take note what Matthew does in the final third of his genealogy. He plows straight through it. An incredibly dark season. Most of the names on the third part of the list are unknown to us, aren't they? Most of the names play a smaller role in the story than their kingly forefathers or their patriarch forefathers. But what we do see is generation after generation after generation that God remains faithful to his people. And that even though the story seems like it's in the dark season, God's not done. Generation after generation, the line of David and Abraham is carried through until Matthew finally points to a son named Jesus. But this son is not simply a common name and a long list of forgotten names. No, this one, no, this one is called the Christ. The Christ. Yes, the time is dark. All that you recognize as the golden age is long gone. But let me make it explicitly clear exactly who we're talking about right now. The anointed one has arrived. He's here. So what do we do with this stuff? How in the world do you respond to God's word when all you did was talk about the intro to a series and read a genealogy? Can't do anything with that. How do we respond to God's word today? Well, If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God reveals about himself in the text that we have in front of us. So what does God reveal about himself in the text today? I think he's bringing his perfect plans to fruition through both men like Abraham and men like Abiud. I think he's bringing his perfect plans to fruition through both women like Rahab and women like Ruth very opposite ends of the character spectrum very opposite ends of the important to the story spectrum listen i don't know where i fall on that spectrum i bet you don't either i'm gonna guess it's probably not very high for me but no matter where i sit according to genealogies like this our god is near and he is still working Church, I think our response this morning probably ought to come in the shape of taking a moment to celebrate who he is and what he has seen fit to do for his people, to to celebrate and rest in his character and in his competency to hold us together in spite of ourselves and in spite of our somewhat embarrassing histories. I'm going to pray and Rob is going to lead us in another song. It's a time that we set aside to give you space to respond and to translate head knowledge into something more functional than that, some kind of action. I'll, I'll be down front if you want somebody to talk to. What if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? How can, how can you respond? Well, simple, you, by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that all people, because of our sin, by default, are separated relationally from God, right? And that because of that separation, because of that sin, uh, we're, we're all owed the just and right punishment for sin. The Bible calls that death. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that He loves us with a great love. And that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He makes us alive through Christ by His grace. God sent His Son, Jesus. He put on flesh and He dwelt among us. The one promised through David and through Abraham and even further back through Adam. He finally came. He finally stepped onto the scene and once he got there, once he got here, Jesus lived the sinless life that you and I aren't able to live and he died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make full and final payment for your sin and he was raised again from the dead as a a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now he calls on you as the victorious king to respond to him in repentance and faith. And man, I'd love to help you do that this morning. I'll be down front if you want to talk. Maybe maybe here this morning you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe that's by um, formally joining our church family. Or maybe it's time to be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized. Or maybe it's time to take the gospel somewhere far away from here and time to publicly say yes to that call he's put on you. I don't know. If that could be helpful. Let's pray and respond to God's word however he's calling you to respond this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for a genealogy at the beginning of Matthew. God, help us trust that your word is good. That you are going to accomplish every single thing you plan to accomplish. Even in spite of me. Thank you for making yourself known. Father, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known to them as well? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear? Call people into your good kingdom today. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.